You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Grab your Bibles. Uh, Mark chapter 6 is where we are today. If you don't have a Bible, please stick your hand up. One of our ushers will be more than happy to get a copy of God's living and active word in your hands. Trust that as you read it, you will come to know Jesus Christ and uh, know him deeper every day. And that's our whole goal as a church, to know Christ and to know him uh, more deeply every day. And so we've been studying Mark, trying to uh, discern the truth about Jesus and to know the reality of who the true Jesus is. Not this, not this make-believe one that we make up, this little version of Jesus of our own that we like to put on the shelves of our houses and our hearts sometimes, but the real Jesus and not just who he is, but what he calls us to. And so we come now to Mark chapter 6 and really the call of Jesus upon our lives. Today it's not about who he is, more about his call upon Upon our lives, and so excited to start a new ministry year, a new sorry, a new year now with this message, encouraging us to get to where Jesus is. That's what we're aiming for. Amen. Amen. We all want to be where Jesus is. That's why we're here today. And so let's uh, get to Mark chapter six. Uh, as we turn there, isn't it crazy? Two thousand and twenty is here. Two thousand. So I remember back in eighty-five when I was like in public school, you know, and like two thousand twenty so far, it's here. And uh, no matter how you came into 2020, you're excited about what 2020 has to hold, I'm sure. Some of us have come in barely keeping our heads above water, right? We're like, I don't know if I can do it, I don't know if I can do it, but there's still a hope and anticipation that hopefully this year is a different year than what I'm experiencing right now. Anyone in that place? In your heart, don't put your hand up. Anyone in that place? Others of us are like riding the wave, right? We're like, this is amazing, can't wait. There's so much to look forward to in 2020. Anyone riding the wave right now? And you're like, this is, life is good. No, no one's riding the wave. It's not, it's not that good, I guess. Hey, eh? one person, newlyweds, of course. <laughs> but irregardless, a new year always brings new opportunities, right? We have all these hopes and all these desires and all these dreams and, and even all these prayers for 2020. So let me ask you this. What are you praying for that God would do in 2020 in your life? Most of us would probably be thinking of things like, we pray things like this. We pray for peace. We pray for protection. We pray for provision. Or prosperity even. Thinking, God, if you could just do these things in my life, then I will find the blessed life. Protection and peace and provision and prosperity. Then I'll find, that'll be a truly great year. But let me just think about this deeply. What happens if I told you that the blessed life actually might have nothing to do with any of those things I just listed? The peace and protection and provision and prosperity that our natural desires so desperately want. In fact, what have I told you this this morning, that the blessing of God sometimes looked exactly the opposite of what you and I would truly desire. And in fact, comfort wouldn't be a sign of blessing, but maybe a sign sometimes that we are actually too much in the world and not enough into Christ. What if I told you that being uncomfortable in this world is actually the greatest blessing you could ever have because you'd find the comfort of Jesus Christ? Makes you uncomfortable thinking about that, doesn't it? But it's a good thought to think about because we're looking for the real Jesus and the real calling upon our lives and we find the reality in Mark chapter six that Jesus isn't necessarily about our comfort in the way the world speaks comfort. He's about us engaging him and submitting him and following him wholeheartedly. Let's read with me Mark chapter six, verses one to 13 only. If you see the subtitle in your Bible, it's Jesus rejected at Nazareth. Already this uncomfortable feeling is coming up and hold on to that because God's going to show us our true comfort which is in being uncomfortable in the world but comfortable in Jesus Christ. Look what it says here. He went away from there and came to his hometown, so Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying this, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not the this carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? This whole dynamic going on, like, who is this guy? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could not do any longer mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled, get this, he marveled because of their unbelief. 
And he went about the villages teaching. Verse 7, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is the word of the Lord. Every word is God-breathed, inspired for our head knowledge, but also our heart knowledge and the fact that we can live out lives obedient and honoring to Jesus Christ. And quite honestly, the plan of this sermon series wasn't to be here on this Sunday, but with all the things that happened in the past, here we are. And yet, as I think about it, how profound this text is, starting a new ministry year, uh, because I think one of the things that really hinders us as believers and hinders us as a church in fully knowing the power of God and the reality of God's presence is this, is that we far too often in our lives, we pursue comfort over the Christian life. I want to be honest with you this morning. Following Jesus will make you a lot of things, but comfortable isn't one of them. Jesus calls us something greater than a comfortable life. He calls us to a committed life in Jesus Christ that will find our true purpose and meaning and identity and true joy. True joy is only found when we're uncomfortable in this world and comfortable in Jesus Christ. Let me read the text and help you understand fully what God is calling us to. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 6 are simply this. It's Jesus, I just read for you, he's heading back to his hometown. He's heading back to Nazareth. And he wasn't coming for homecoming gathering or for a family reunion. He was coming here for the purposes of ministry and knowing, remember Jesus is God, knowing full, full, fully what was going to happen when he got there. He came in and he came in to preach. And so he comes into the town and already his his prestige has hit the press. They knew of him in Nazareth. They remember him as a little, little boy growing up there. Now they knew that, man, this is, this, the same Jesus is now preaching these great sermons and God's doing great things for him. So they invite him to preach in the synagogue. Remember, he's not a rabbi, nor did he learn under a rabbi, but he is now being offered an opportunity to preach in the synagogue uh, along with, as they often did with itinerant rabbis. And so Jesus, of course, doesn't take doesn't say no to an opportunity, and so he comes in and he starts teaching, and he teaches uh, obviously the Old Testament. We didn't have the New. Then he teaches the Old Testament in such a profound way that even the who's who of the who's who in the Christian circle is sitting there going like, "What in the world? I've never heard things like before this before. It's profound. It's like a this is deep. It's engaging. It's energizing. What is going on? It says they were astonished. Astonished is more than like a." It means, to, it means to strike or to blast. It's like this mind-blowing. I've heard the Old Testament in church many times, but not like this. Was it because Jesus was engaging? Probably. Was it because he was not, it wasn't because he was swinging through the rafters because he was adding so much wisdom to the text and applying it to their lives in a way that was probably the gospel. Like this, whole, this, this whole Old Testament was pointing to the Messiah, and he probably somewhere there said, and guess what? The Messiah is here. All they could see is this little boy that grew up in Nazareth, right? And so they asked the question. They asked the question, what is this wisdom? Where did the man, this man get these things? Again, no rabbi, no teaching. What is this wisdom given to him? How are these mighty works done by you say done by his hands, it's kind of like done by his hands, kind of a little disdain in that, like, he's just a regular guy like one of us. Remember the Nazareth, Nazareth they weren't popular, they actually they were scorned of the society, they were like, he's just a little outcast like us. Probably trying to figure out how do you do his mighty works like we do with magic, or like, okay, what's the illusion here? They're trying to figure it all out. Then they say this, is, is this not the carpenter? That's, again, that's a little bit of a derogatory term. You're going to see, he's, it's not creating a lot of like, momentum for his cause. Is this not the carpenter, like the stonemason, the, the guy who holds signs at the construction site? Is this not him? Really a nobody? The son of Mary? And you might think this is a big deal, but it is a big deal. They're really denying the virgin birth, right? And I'm sure he said in there somewhere that he is the Messiah, and Messiah's going to come by a virgin. Well, he's the son of Mary. Back in those days, they often identified you with this, the name of your father. So this should have been Joseph's son, but they're basically saying it's not Joseph's son. They're basically saying, isn't this the son of the, the illegitimate son of Mary? You know the term for illegitimate child, right? Isn't this the bastard? 
It came from Mary? I've been called a lot of things, not that one for a long time. But it's not favorable, as you can see. Like, like look at this. He's the carbon son of Mary, the brother of James, and Jesus had a family. You know, we often think Jesus was the only child. He wasn't. He had a family. James and Joseph, not Moses, Joseph. And Judas and Simon, and he had some sisters. Just pointing out that the Catholics sometimes believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, you know, like she was a virgin once and a virgin for all that made her so blessed. Well, clearly she wasn't, right? At least six siblings, probably more. Just to get that straight in your head, Mary's blessed, but she's not like up here above everybody else. Jesus is. And so they took offense at him. This isn't the Canadian way we take offense at people. We take offense at people in Canada like, hey, you really offended me. I'm ticked at you now. Like, can you believe what they did to me? We take it. No, this is like a take offense, like getting hot at a collar, getting all like bent out of shape, like seething that they're ready to, this word take offense means that they're ready to lash out and trap him and, and do harm to him. And Jesus said to them this, he said, a prophet is not without honor except his hometown and among his relatives in his own household. In other words, in other words, sometimes those that are going to reject you the harshest are those that are the closest. I grew up here. I knew these people. I expected any place is going to be a warm welcome. This is it. Instead, this is the place I'm getting the, the harshest welcome of all. It doesn't sound right. Why, why would we, I get to this point, like, why would they be so offended at the fact that he taught the scriptures well? Why would they be so offended? Probably because just like in our culture, just like in our culture, they wanted to hear anything but the true reality of the the truth of the reality of who Jesus is. And so, so deep down in their hearts, they, they were like a lot of people in our culture. They're looking for the, the supernatural circus and not the reality of Christ. Maybe you're here today doing that. I want all the miraculous signs, but I don't want to know Jesus and what he really teaches. That might cramp my style. Can you put that slide up, Ben, please? Right? He didn't live the easy life. Next slide. And some people look for the opportunity for, for just supernatural only. And so it, 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 it wasn't comfortable for Jesus, and it's not going to be comfortable for us. Here's some other reasons why people get to the point of taking such great offense. First of all, it helps us understand the psyche of those that maybe we hope to re- respond to the gospel. Uh, maybe they're content in their own ways. Again, one of the barriers to the gospel, we, we, we hear the truth of Jesus. It makes a lot of sense to us, and, and we love it, and yet there's something that keeps us. Why? Because we just, we just know he's going he's gonna to mess with us. And, and so we're just so content in our own ways. And a lot of people in our culture, he isn't popular, not because they don't believe it's true, because they're too content to do anything about it. Maybe that's the reality of the people here. What about this one? The desire to be their own God. Like, I love my life, and I control my life, and I do what I think is best. And it might make sense to me, but I'm not going there because I want to be my own God. Maybe he's preaching a message like he did in Luke 4. He called them apostate in Luke 4 in his own temple. Maybe that's what he's preaching. Like it just rubs people the wrong way. Here's another reason. Here's another reason. The familiarity breeds content, as he just said. Just like the last of Niagara Falls. Like it's not exciting anymore. And the people, even people in church, they get to know Christ a little bit. It's exciting at first. Then they get all offended at him. Why? Because it's not, it's not cool and new anymore. And maybe that's what's happening here. What about the next one? Threatened by his greatness. That's really probably what's happening. This, this little Jesus. Like, who does he think he is? It wasn't, it wasn't even the question of like, who is this man? You know, who is this man? It's like, who is this man? This is like, who does he think he is? Maybe it's this. They're just stuck in their unbelief. Isn't that the reason most, all people are opposed to Jesus? Eyes are blinded, hearts hardened. God has to come in and do a work in them and us to fully allow us in the reality of Jesus. Ultimately, though, that you have to know this, that people oppose Jesus and they're going to also oppose us. And if you're going to live for Christ truly in 2020, here's the reality. You can't be worrying about your own comfort and people liking you and accepting you because that is not, it's incongruent with the reality of the Christian life and the Christian message and the Christ that we serve. Think about this for a minute. Jesus was rejected. The one who is everything was rejected by the, those who were not. Like, remember, the, Nazareth was the lowest. He was outcast by the outcasts. 
In fact, it tells us throughout the scriptures that this is a defining reality of Jesus' life. It actually foreshadowed his ultimate rejection on the cross. How can we hate him more but hammer him to a cross? But it's showing us that this is Jesus' life. Like the prophets before him, he was rejected by his own people. Like the stone that was going to become the building, the, the cornerstone, it was rejected by those, it says in Psalm 118, 22. The stone that would be the cornerstone was rejected by man. And 1 Peter 2, 23 says, Jesus was reviled and he suffered. And so here's the reality. Here's, here's why I, I, I camped a little bit on this text because I think it's important for us. Because so often we go plowing into New Year going like, I'm going to be all in for Jesus here. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. Here's what it's going to be if you're going to follow Jesus. Your life is going to mimic his. It's going to be uncomfortable and you will be rejected. So I've entitled this Comfort Seekers Beware. Because we want our Jesus and we want our comfort too. And somehow in North American culture, we have come to understand, well, if, if I can have people like me and they can like me and accept me, then guess what? They're going to like my Jesus too. You know what? That's the furthest thing from the truth possible. That God teaches us in his word about who Christ really is and about what it means to really follow him. I get it when you think of this. Number one fear of most of us, which is limits our faith, limits our church, and even creates this kind of impotence around the power of God and the gospel. Here's what it is. We care more about what other people think than what God thinks. Can I call it out? And you have all your things you want God to do for you this year, and you go to your prayer list. What about this? How about this year asking God, God, help me to care more about what you think than what other people think and live my life fully engaged in the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That will be a powerful life. That will be a difference maker in your life and so many others. And the truth is, if we're going to do that, guess what? We are also going to face the same thing Jesus faced in being rejected. I know, I get it. None of us wake up in the morning or little kids going, you know what I want to be when I grow up? Rejected. How'd you get school said? It was awesome. No one sat with me in the cafeteria. How'd work go? Everyone ostracized me once they started talking about Jesus. None of us desire that. And we want to equate effectiveness for Christ with people in the world loving us. That's going to create an ineffective life for Jesus Christ. Because the scripture tells us in many places that if we're going to truly be united with Christ, we're going to face the same things he did. How about Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 13, the Beatitudes. Remember, blessed are you. We all want blessing, right? Blessed are you or happy have you, favor with God are you and, and happiness in Christ are you when what? When verse 9 says, you found favor in God and find true personal happiness when you are persecuted for righteousness sake. For then yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, again, it says in verse 11, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, not because you're the annoying person in the office or the obnoxious kid at school, because of my name or on my account. In that case, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for they also persecuted the prophets who were before you. But I thought if God really had favor on me, then I'd find favor with everyone else. Your desire for human approval, my desire for human approval, actually limits the fullness of what God wants to do in our lives and through our lives. Without question. Luke chapter 6, 26, Woe to you, which is judgment upon you, when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to all the, all the false prophets. John chapter 12, verse 43, many choose unbelief, Jesus is saying here, because why they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from the Lord. I'm quoting you scripture. Because I think it's time, as individuals of the church, that we got out of our comfort zones and really realized what it is to truly follow Jesus. We pray hard. God, do something in me. Do something in our church. Use me for your purposes, yet we won't sacrifice comfort for the Christian call. Can I remind you, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is king, but he's still the outcast king. 
If you're truly following Jesus, when you leave this place, it's easy here to get your hands up in the air to proclaim Christ. As soon as you do that out there, no matter how bold or how shy you are, it's not going to be accepted and neither are you. The Christian message isn't all the hype out there. The message of Jesus is in your face. It makes people angry. It's, it's uncomfortable. You have to confront the fact that you're a sinner. You need a savior. You have to give away all your dreams and plans and follow Jesus. It's just not going to be the message that everyone's going to gravitate to. And the sooner we get a hold of that, the more effective we'll be for Christ and the more satisfied we'll be in Jesus Christ. I think it's time we as a church took the call, the life of Jesus, seriously. This is the life Jesus walked. He didn't, he didn't just walk this once. His whole life was revolving around this, this rejection and, and people misunderstanding him and misaligning him and maliciously shunning him. I think it's time that we stopped embracing our comfort and started embracing Christ. I know you're really quiet. It's convicting, isn't it? Isn't it? But if we realize this is the path God calls us to, it's, it's not really sacrificial. It's, it's an urgent, I want to do this for the glory of Jesus Christ. I want more of Christ. We want to fellowship with Christ, but we don't want to fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And Paul says fellowship with Christ is also fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. That is true fellowship with Christ. Here's my proposal for this year. Instead of, instead of making our goal for everyone to like us, it's never going to happen anyways. Even people in this church don't like us all the time, right? <laughs> you guys snicker. Maybe I just know that more than you. The reality is that Sliding down our prayer list ought to be all the things that are the, the protection and provision and all those things. And sliding up our prayer list ought to be these three things. I'm not saying take those things off your prayer list. But let's make this a priority, pursuing Jesus Christ. How about these things? Finding all of our identity in Christ this year to the point where we're, we're even willing to get out there and take shots for the name of Christ. How about this one? Identifying with Jesus Christ. Standing with him no matter what others think. I'm going to choose in 2020, God, give me grace and give me strength to care more, more about what you think than what anyone else thinks at school or at work or in my community, my friend circles. Help me identify with you no matter what and, try and, and find true friendship with you and you alone, above all. How about this one, finding our identity in Christ, in Jesus. God, help me this year find my true identity in Jesus Christ. Why do we fear the approval of, why do we fear the approval of man so much? Why do we long for it so much? Because somehow we place our identity in what people say about us. Well, they say I'm a loser, so I must be a loser. They, they say I'm no fun, so I must be no fun. They say I'm a this or that. Well, how about this this year? Praying that God, help me so care about what you already say about me that I don't care what other people think about me. They might say I'm nothing, but I know, God, that in you, through Christ, I am everything. They might call me any kind of name, but I know that I am a son or a daughter of the living God. They might reject me, but I know that I'm already accepted in Jesus Christ because I'm a part of his eternal family now, and that's good enough for me. Amen. They might take my job and my reputation. It doesn't matter because God has my future secure and my provisions cared for, so I'm going to bank on Christ and not others this year. I'm going to put my identity in Jesus Christ. Some of us just need to get to that point. I'm a Christian. Christian. By God's strength, let's ask that we identify with Jesus more and more that we, our identity is in Jesus, that we are identified for Jesus Christ. All three same things in a different way, but here's the reality. Let's pray that God will help us this coming year when people think of you and your name in your school, in your workplace, in your community, that they won't think, oh, he's a Leaf fan. Who cares? They blow our expectations every spring. But when they think of you, they'll think this. That person is an all-in follower of Jesus Christ. That you'll be identified with Jesus Christ. There's three goals I give you for 2020 that I know will propel your faith and you'll also experience the reality of God like never before if we can grab a hold of these things. Enough with being accepted by the world, in with being accepted by Jesus. Here's what one author says. I don't know who it came from. It was a quote I read this week that I thought sounded so strong. It's this. Make this part of your prayer 
agenda every day this year. I would rather stand with God and be judged by the world than stand with the world and be judged by God. Rather stand with God and be judged by the world. It's going to happen. Than stand with the world and be judged by God. That is also going to happen. God, help us in this. Take us from where we are, God, and just hoping for things and actually being what we're called to be with this mentality. Living out radical discipleship in Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just live the uncomfortable life. He also calls us to live out a radical discipleship in Jesus. So easy for us to call ourselves Christians. What's it really mean? Well, I'm a Christian. Half half of Canada says they're a Christian. What does it really mean? It means that I'm a Christ follower. I I, I identify with Christ. I'm all in with Christ. I, I no longer live for myself, but I live for Christ who lives in me. That's what Jesus calls us to, to truly experience all that he has for us this coming year, to truly experience that hashtag was still cool, which I understand from our younger staff it's not anymore, but if it was still cool, it would be hashtag blessed. How do we become hashtag blessed? It's, it's to be living in radical discipleship in Jesus Christ. How do we do that? I'm glad you asked, because it's not just saying I'm going to be rejected with Christ, I'm also going to go all out for Christ and follow him wholeheartedly. This is really what he's saying in verses 7. Now, the rest of this, Jesus calling out his 12 disciples. He's saying, he's, he's saying, no more compartments of our lives. Jesus at the center, recklessly abandoned Jesus Christ. Let me read this for you again, just to remind you what's going on, I'll give you some commentary to understand the fullness of this call upon our lives. Here's a 2020 call. It's first of all, to accept the fact that life is not going to be comfortable this year if I'm going to live for Christ. Got that? Check. You got it? You got it? Check. Second one is Jesus calls me to a radical discipleship, maybe like never before this year. Here's what truly experiencing Jesus Christ is. And he called the 12 and began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them to take what with them? We can't even say that word, eh? It's too, it's too, uh, too cold. Charge them to take nothing. nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag. Let's think of this. 12 guys being sent out two by two to do some incredible things, and he says, take nothing for the journey. When was the last time you went on a journey with nothing? Exactly. I go away overnight, and I think I'm going to have a t-shirt and a pair of pants. Let's say I've got like four pairs of pants and three t-shirts and four dressers just in case I go to here or here or here, and my wife adds more things to that, and we got this big suitcase. We're like, we're only going overnight. I can tell some of you resonate with that. No bread. Like I take a snack to work in the morning just in case. No bag, no money for your belt. So I take my wallet everywhere. I keep my belt on. Keep your belt on. It says you see, keep your belts on. Sandals. I have to put on two tunics. Here's what a tunic is. It's basically a, a set of clothes. Like bring one set of clothes. Here's a tunic. That right there. It's one set of clothes. And don't, don't bring two in your bag. One pair of shoes. Women, that's tough, eh? Go and stay where you stay. Don't bring your GPS just as the Lord leads. As long as they welcome you, stay. If they don't, don't. And just go and preach. See what he says? Go and preach. Not find the luxury hotels. Not, not find the vacation spots. Go and preach. That people should what? They should repent. And do great things in the name of Jesus that only he can do as he calls you to do them. And really, let me break this down for you in four ways, just to help you understand an application of what this text is saying. This text is saying, brothers and sisters, there's no longer any time for us to be comfortable. It's now time for us to forsake our comfort to actually pursue the calling of Christ. To really be a true disciple. Here's what being a true disciple is. It's being called to go. It's being called to go. Look what he does here. He calls 12 apostles. 12 is not a magic number. It's, it's to show us that this whole God movement started with 12 regular, ordinary men. As John MacArthur says, it's 12 tribes of an apostate nation of Israel being replaced by 12 disciples to provide new, true spiritual leadership to God's people. Notice of the 12 people, the 12 disciples, we've studied them already a little bit in Mark, but notice this, none of them are the religious, none of them are the, the, the trained superstars in faith or religious people, they were all regular people. It's like a slap in the face of the religious institutions. 
You're so comfortable with your calm and cozy services and all the fun things that you do and all your socials and outreaches and all the things you do for yourselves. But, but that's passe, all the pharisaical attitudes. Forget that stuff. Let's go hard for Jesus Christ. So we see the disciples here, and they're finally being kicked out into full-time ministry. This is the beginning of their ministry. They've passed this Jesus seminary. They've been with him for, for a number of time, months, and maybe years by now. And now Jesus is at the point where he's like, get kicked out of the nest. Psh, get going. You've been with me long enough. I'm sure the disciples' internal desire would have been this. Well, just let us learn a little bit more. Let us stay a little bit longer. Why do we have to leave, Jesus? We'll just follow you. And Jesus is like, you know what? I brought you in, not to keep you under the, my wings for your whole life, but to actually send you out to be a disciple. A disciple is one who goes out and makes disciples. We are called to actually go. Right? It's like an army. No one trains for the army to never go to war. How ridiculous would that be? I got my uniform on, know how to use my guns and everything, and, and, but I'm never going to go to war. It's like, it's like a doctor who gets a, uh, their, their, their physician degree and all they end up doing is sitting and chatting with their buddies about what a being a doctor looks like and means. Well, we're doctors now. We studied for seven years, but have you treated a patient? Nope. You ever going to a hospital? Not yet. It's like a lifeguard who studies all the things and then, and then I have my lifeguarding, I'm a lifeguard, I'm a lifeguard. Well, when are you going to get in the chair? I'm not sure I'm going to get in the chair. Ever saved anyone? No, 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 but I know how. I know all the theories and I know all the philosophies. I know how to do it. Isn't that true of the church, it seems, sometimes? Oh, man, we've been trained well. We've sat in church for a long time. We've gone to our small groups. We know all the ins and outs. We love to debate it among each other. Like, oh, yeah, what's the best strategy? What's the latest thing? And they're not doing what they should do. You think you're doing? You know what God calls us to do? To go. To get out there and do it, we get so caught up in so many different discussions. What about just going out and, and being a part of what God wants to do in the world through us? I think for some of us, it's time to get kicked out of the comfort blankets of our small groups, the comfort blankets of our church. And now's the time, now's the time this year to actually get out there and to go and find people to make disciples with. Why do you send them out two by two? They needed to go two by two. They need, they, need, they need support, they need, they need encouragement. You have that in your small group, you have that in your church, but the point is we have to go. No Christian is supposed to be self-sustaining as we go, no, no family unit is supposed to be this little self-contained family unit. We're supposed to do this together, but we're supposed to push each other out the door together, two by two, to, to proclaim the message, to strengthen each other, to protect each other, but ultimately to confirm the, mess, the message. That's why Jesus sent disciples two by two. One witness didn't give any credence to anyone in the society. Two witnesses, you couldn't refute it. Jesus is alive. Jesus is the Christ. Will we go? Will we go? Can I be honest with you? Some of you guys love coming to church. Love it. Love getting on your internet and searching all the Christian things. Love it. Do we love going with that same intensity and urgency? We're not true disciples until we're going. Jesus calls me a radical discipleship. It starts with this, it starts with, I am going. I am going. He's called me to go. How? In Jesus' authority. Look at this. Give them authority over the unclean spirits. I love how Jesus says when we go, we're not alone as we go. We're not, we're not, we don't have to figure this out on our own. Acts 1.8 says what? I will give you power through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Judea, Jamaria, and Samaria, Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and the ends of the earth, Right? He's called us to go, and a lot of you are thinking, like, already, like, ooh, out of my comfort zone. Let's get out of our comfort zones. Forget about comfort zones. True comfort zones are only when you're comfortable in God's plan for your life. And as you go, you're not going alone. You're going with power. He's going to give you, it says here to disciples, his authority to cast out demons and heal diseases. We don't have that. That's an apostle thing, just to clarify. We don't have that. That's an apostle thing. The marks of an apostle, which we don't have today, are these things. They had been with Jesus. They were witnesses of the resurrection. They are chosen by the Holy Spirit. None of us are, but we're all believers here, chosen by God to be his disciples out on mission with his power. He promises in Matthew 28 that he will be with us always, even to the end of the age. What else do we need? The power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. We pray great things. We pray for certain things from God. We expect God to do great things through us. But do we actually take seriously his call to go with the power and the presence of God that that is where we're going to actually see God the greatest? Yeah, we see God in church on Sunday mornings. We worship together. It's a powerful time. But the greater place we see God is out there living it by his spirit, by his power for the glory of Jesus Christ.
love of the disciples came with nothing to offer. Jesus sends him with nothing to offer but himself and his power and his authority. How long are we going to talk about it? All that you need is at your disposal. In my, in my shed, I have a few tools. And go to French sheds, they have tools upon tools. If I need a tool, I know who to call. And, and I got a couple tools in my tool belt. But you go out, and God's got all the tools you will ever need to be a difference maker in this world. Is your prayers to be comfortable this year or to be a difference maker for the, Jesus, for the glory of Jesus? You think you've arrived this year and now you're just gonna coast the rest of your life? We're gonna lead Jesus to commission you to be a disciple and to see souls saved. We're a real defining moment here in our church history, eight years in, and we've seen God do many things. Are we just gonna rest back on our Success of the past, or are we going to see God do more things and greater things in the coming days? I don't know about you, but I'm not just content to sit in the past. I'm actually a little bit uncomfortable being comfortable, to be honest. That's my nature. We're all cool that now we have a church. We want to see God do more things in our community. This is what God's called us to, to, to go with his authority through unwavering faith. Through unwavering faith. I love how God sent them with Nothing. Again, we pray so often, God, fill my bank account, fill my RRSPs, fill my retirement, and forgetting that he fills those things that we can use them for his glory. I love how he sends him with nothing, fully dependent. It's a lesson in dependence. It's a lesson in humility. It's a lesson in, in urgency for God and God alone. And he sends him out, and he says, don't look for personal accolades. Can you imagine going on a trip anywhere with nothing? Especially in the desert. This is a desert culture. They're, they're, they're being called to go with nothing, no water, no bread. What are they calling them to? He's calling them to the ultimate, uh, a faith like no other, a faith that we don't even know. Why would he call them to this? Just to teach them what Matthew 6 really means, that don't worry about tomorrow so that you can, you'll have enough of what you need in Jesus Christ today? Is, is that all it was, or was it this? It was more this, to, to teach them that, man... What God wants from our lives, more than even having all the luxuries and all the comforts of the world, is just to walk by faith and not by sight. So much so that he was determined that they went and trusted him for everything, that he didn't just send them to take anything with them, but he said, when you go to someone's house, forget Expedia, someone's going to invite you in. Stay there as long as they'll let you. In other words, once you get to the town and the first person invites you in, it might be the poorest person in town, that's okay. Stay there because it's not about your comfort. I don't want people thinking about this Christian thing is about comfort and ease is what he's trying to teach. Stay there until they won't have you any longer. Enjoy that southern hospitality for as long as they give it to you. Don't go looking for the better, the better bed, the more comfortable sleeping quarters or the better meals. Stay there and teach the message. As soon as they don't, as soon as they don't welcome you, don't take that personally. They're not really, they're not really rejecting you. Remember, just they rejected Jesus. They're rejecting Jesus Christ. Keep on going. And it says, take, take the dust off your sandals. I had someone tell me recently, this meant not too long ago, this was a good thing. It's a sign of blessing. Clearly, it's not a sign of blessing. Look what it says. Shake the dust off your feet as a testimony for them, against them. Don't worry about trying to like make someone understand that doesn't understand or has a hard heart. Don't try to change that hard heart. You know, still pray for them. And here's what happened in, in Jesus' day. That when Jewish people would travel into a Gentile territory, they'd come back and take one step. This is the line. One step back into Israel, they'd be like, home. they take their shoes off and be like, as a sign of like getting all the contamination and all the, the sinful realities of the outside world off of their sandals. And they keep on, put their sandals back on and go their merry way. This is, what, this is what Jesus said. Take your, take your dust off your sandals. Don't, don't get embroiled in all these great big debates and create more hate for yourself. Just keep on going in unwavering faith that God will, don't judge them. God will be the judge of that. Maybe God will turn their hearts another day. Pray for them and go, but go knowing that God is going to look after them and he's going to look after you as you go forward. I find this part of the text fascinating because it's so opposite the way we think. Even heard a preacher on the radio saying not too long ago that Jesus was actually a wealthy man. Did you know that? Oh, he was. He had money bags all the time, and, and he had um, 
People clamoring all over him. That's why they sang Hosanna on the way into the city because he was king and he was prosperous and, and he had the nicest clothes. That's why they fought over his clothes and he was truly an earthly success. That's why people liked him. And so somehow people buy into this thing. If I can be an earthly success and have all the things that the world longs for, then somehow they'll love my Jesus too. Can I give you a newsflash? All they're going to love is success and not Jesus. Then they're just going to want to come to Jesus for success and not Jesus for who Jesus truly is, uh, savior of their sin condition and giver of life to their souls. You heard that in the radio before? It seemed to be popular today. Some of them are buying into it. That's baloney. That's why Jesus sent them out with nothing. That people, when they responded, would just, just be for Christ, clearly just for Christ, just for Christ. And along with that comes this, this idea that, that, that the Christians somehow have to have a lot to be, actually be useful for Christ. I had a friend of mine not too long ago tell me this. Well, once I have more, once my business is up more, then I can give back to Christ. And I'm like, why don't you give back to Christ now? with what you have, and use what you have for the glory of God, maybe he'll add to your business to give more to the glory of God. This whole success and prosperity, and do you read that in the text? Now, for those of you who think we have to be called to a vow of poverty now, and now to be a Christian, you have to be impoverished, skinny little faces and ratty clothes and look like a disheveled mask. That's not it either. Because in fact, in Luke chapter um, 22, Luke chapter 22, 35 and 36, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, that was for a time, that call of, of kind of the forsaking all things was for a time. But then he told them, now take some money with you. Take a backpack and buy a sword. This was a temporary call to devotion of the disciples as they started the ministry that, that there'd be no false impressions of who Jesus was or what the ministry was all about. That doesn't mean you're vowing poverty for your life. It just means this, it means this. We have to walk by faith and not sight. We have to hold less to what this world offers and more to what Christ offers if we're truly gonna be useful for the kingdom of God in this coming year. Anyone with me on that? If fear of rejection is number one on our list of why we don't live for Christ, the material possessions we have that hold us cling to us far too tightly is number two in our culture. We so care about our own comfort that we forget about Christ. The blessings God gives you, he puts them in your hands for a quick season. What for? That you can pour them out on other people. I find the more generous I am with my money, the more God seems to be able to, to keep our finances in order that I can give more to what God has. That's exactly the same for you and I. It's exactly the same. Somehow we've come to this. I'm a Christian. personal reputation, materialism, then Christ. Instead of, I'm a Christian. Open-handed, all that I have is God's, by God and for God. Read this uh, solid retweet of someone I don't even know but it's a pastor in the United States. Just reemphasizing this fact that the things we have are from God, and we're not, we have this such entitled mindset in our Christian lives that, that God owes me, and if I pray, God should, and why don't I have when God has given others? And yet, what it's doing is limiting our view of God, it's, it's distracting us from who God is and the mission of God. Listen to what Ronnie Martin, this pastor in the U.S., this unknown pastor in the U.S., he puts our, our materialism in perspective for us. Listen to what he says, beginning of this year God took some significant things away from me this year. Good things. And I still don't know why. But here's what I do know. They were never my things. They were gifts not guaranteed for life. They're potential idols. They're gone because I am loved. That's faith. God took some significant things away from this year, good things. I don't know why, but here's what I do know. They were never my things. They were gifts not guaranteed for life. They're potential idols. They're gone because I am loved. I'm praying this year that God would even break me of my worldly mindset of grabbing more stuff and letting go of God. You want a successful year? Pray that God will help you go. Pray that you'll know the full power of God in your life as you go. Pray that you'll be able to, to be satisfied with what you have and, and, and set your eyes on things above, not on things of this earth, and then to go with this, confidently speaking truth. Look what he told them to do. 
There was nothing in this call that has any public appeal. He called them to go and proclaim to people the gospel of repentance. If there's anything that's going to make you unpopular in today's day and age, it's going to be preaching the message of repentance. Why do you think some churches are blowing up and others are not? Because of the message of repentance. What's repentance? It's, he called them to do this. Go and tell people that they're sinners who need a Savior. Go and point people to Jesus. Go tell them that this is what God's call upon your life is now, to disagree with everything you know and in turn agree with God. This is the first step of repentance. Second, second step of repentance is to disavow all your allegiances and give your allegiance to only Jesus. He gets your only vote. And to dis- Stain your old way of life and grab onto a new and a better way. Bottom line is this. There's no self-seeking in the mission for Christ. It's Christ and Christ alone. Again, so often we say we want to see God work. So often we say, God, show us your power. Show us your glory. And yet, this is the way to it. How deeply and desperate are you to see God do something new in your life, in the lives of your family and friends and relatives, in our church? Are we content with our church as being what it is? And Oh, we have a nice little church of 650, 700 people. Or do we know our mission is to help other people outside know Jesus Christ and bring them inside? What's going to be our focus this year? Is it peace and prosperity and provision? Or is it to say, God, take me out of my comfort zones and help me live the truly blessed life? It's a real question. How, care, how much do you care about those around you that don't know Jesus Christ? Oh, we know, we know that there's a heaven, there's a hell. We, we get that. We know there's only one way to heaven, it's through Jesus. But what if I get the nicer car? But I want the nicer car more than I want to tell someone about Jesus Christ. How about on your prayer list, under the three things of finding your identity in Christ, or some things like, God, give me courage to go, open my mouth. For some of you, this needs to be the year. This needs to be the year. You've, you've held on way too long. You're trained. You're ready. Go and share Jesus Christ with somebody this year. Make a list. Start praying for them. Make opportunities. Don't wait for them to come to you. Make opportunities to share Jesus Christ. This is your year. No amens on that, eh? This is your year. Enough. This is your year. This is, it's time to grab a hold of what God is doing. What God wants to do. Take it upon yourself to be obedient to God's call. Let's together decide this year, God, I don't want to be about comfort. I want to be about the call of God. Our church together. Can you imagine how much our church could do together if we all got on this page where you are, who you meet with, that no one else in this church meet with? Can you imagine if our church got on this page together? Uh, let's pray this year is an explosion of the gospel going forward. That yes, we will see growth because we see people come to know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Growth is not wrong or bad. Amen? There are small groups of be adding new people we've never met before. It's going to create my style. Who cares? It's going to add to God's kingdom. But all my preferences aren't going to be met. That's okay. It's okay. We want to see people growing in grace in Jesus Christ. Let's pray this year that God will help us be less about comfort and more about his call on our lives. <coughs> Wilbur Reese said this. He wrote this to describe the average man's view of God. I think it applies very much today as it did in his day. Let's pray against this attitude in our lives. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my peace and my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't, wanna, I don't want enough of him to make me love a different nationality. I edited that for you. Or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal, a paper sack. I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I propose, church, 2020 is a time to become uncomfortable with being comfortable. It's time for us in our Christian faith to to have some substance to be uncomfortable with being comfortable or to be comfortable with being uncomfortable, however we want to say it. It, it, It's time. We we can't sit here. The time is urgent. We just learned this past fall with all the deaths we've had in our church. our, Our eternity is right here. 
Our mortality is right here. We don't have time to waste or energy to spend on other things. We have Christ and his kingdom and our job and responsibility, our purpose to help everybody we know get further along that path. It's time to embrace our call in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this as we close. Are you expecting more to use God for your means this coming year or are you asking God to use you for his purposes? I get it. I'm messing up with your whole prayer, your whole prayer sheet and your whole goal for 2020. Good. God turns things upside down through Jesus Christ. Are you expecting to use God for your means this coming year or asking God to use you for his purposes? Ultimately knowing that the only way to live, the only way to live, the only way to live, fully abandoned and fully centered in Jesus Christ. And what you'll find is uncomfortable is actually comfortable. You know why? Because you truly get Jesus. You truly get Jesus Christ. You truly make a difference for his kingdom. And all the comforts, who cares? I have what I need and what I desire most. The longings of my soul. I have meaning. I have purpose. I am being alive and impactful for the glory of Jesus. That's truly what comfort is, even if it makes us uncomfortable for a short time on this earth until we inevitably all meet Jesus Christ. Are you stand for this world and be judged by God? Or are you going to stand for God and be judged by this world? I'm praying for my own life and for our church. It's the latter more than the former. Let's pray. God, I stand here this morning as a needy man. And all the things I just preached, God, I need these things in my life. I am so far from arrived. I am not perfect in any way. And God, I long for more of you in my life. I long for more boldness and courage. God, I long for you to pry my sticky little hands off of the things that I think are mine. I long for you, God, to help me to release my life into your hands this year and to live fully what you've called me to. God, I long for this for our church. God, will you protect us from being complacent? It's so easy to be complacent. It's so natural to be complacent. God, protect us from this. And instead, God, give us urgency. Help us to see Jesus Christ so clearly, the, the one who died for our sins, the one who gave us his everything. Help us to see the glory of Jesus so clearly, Lord, and to know what eternity is in the depths of our souls, that we would want to live, God, not for this life, but for you and for the next. Oh, God, would you help us in these things? Rip us, Lord, out of our comfort zones. Kick us out from the security blankets, and God, may we live fully surrendered and totally abandoned to you this year. God, I pray this. I can't make this happen in my life. I can't make this happen in our people's lives. But God, may we not just go through a year and say we made it through, how successful we were, nothing serious happened, nothing went wrong, nothing went good. And I'm satisfied in that. Give us greater satisfaction, greater desires, Lord, and greater appetites that we'd only truly find our satisfaction is when we know you deeply, God, and we're living fully yielded to the plan of King Jesus. We love you. Thank you for the start to a ministry year, to a new year. May you take the conviction and the challenge and the encouragement and truly move us to give us the best possible year in Jesus Christ that we might truly know what it means to be blessed. Happiness and favor, blessed in you. In Jesus' name, amen.